0: Namaste. I'm Naya Swami Asha, and we are continuing our discussion of Swami Kriyananda's compilation, The Essence of Self-Realization, The Wisdom of Paramahansa Yogananda. We are up to Chapter 4 of this book. Um, as long as I can keep doing it all, re- re- recite like a litany what the chapters before were about. The first is The Folly of Materialism. The second is... Um, the true purpose of life and the third is the dream nature of the universe and these are all building together we start from one point of view and then we gradually build a whole world view here and our chapter this week is called the soul and god a very interesting chapter it's it doesn't have a lot of entries in it but what master's trying to establish we last week we talked at great length about the dream nature of the universe how the Process the pro, uh, The definition of the spiritual path is to be able to live and perceive a deeper reality than the obvious, and in all all the different ways that Master could try to help us to see that which we can't see, he draws. He drew all these pictures for us, uh, helping us to tune in on a deeper level to what life is, the true purpose of life, and how that purpose is not obvious because this world is not what it seems. And so this week, Master is going to the heart of the matter, which is, who are we in relation to God? Now, these are the kinds of questions that people like to ask and people like to discuss. And college students stay up all night drinking coffee and talking about when I had my very brief career in college. Brief because I only lasted a year. Um, I took a class called consciousness, and had high hopes for it, uh, but I realized that people were sitting around tra- trading opinions is the only way I could describe it, which is a certain a certain amount of academia is that there's a they they see themselves as their job is to collect all the information and to consider all the points of view, but It's not uh, an environment in which someone declares that this is reality. And I learned the difference without actually knowing the words between knowledge and wisdom. And I was looking for wisdom. I was looking for a, a, a path to follow that would give my life meaning. And I walked into an academic environment in which people's meaning was from being familiar with a thousand different possibilities, and there seemed no urgency for anyone but me to to winnow those to to, to discern through those possibilities um, to that which was lastingly true. Now, when a master speaks, it's from an entirely different point of view because they're having an experience of the reality that they're describing. Master's poem Samadhi, which is just an extraordinary piece of mystical literature, unique. Swamiji says in all of all of spiritual writing, and he simply went into that state of consciousness, and then described what it was. Master said he wrote the poem Samadhi while he was riding on the New York subway. I just you don't even know where to put your thoughts. I mean, I don't think. I could write any poem writing on the New York subway what to speak of a poem about cosmic consciousness that's so magnificent but Master was demonstrating not only by the poem he wrote but by the context in which he wrote it well, the dream nature of the universe. I've been having an interesting perception lately which is not necessarily prompted by this chapter or any chapter of any book. It's its just occurred to me on a deeper level. Now, let me preface this by saying, I've been on the path for many years now, really quite a few decades. It's, it doesn't mean anything how many years you've been on the path, in the sense that the longer you're on the path, the less time means to you. And more than that, for any person who's toward the middle or the end of their incarnation, you recognize that time just passes. Time passes very differently after it's done, than when you anticipate it. Um, but having said that, on the spiritual path, it's always the same path from the moment that you start. And in the company of someone like Swamiji, where I've spent my spiritual life, with Master's resources of his books in front of us, it's not like we didn't have all the information from the beginning. One does uh, progress in order to take Kriya initiation, and one can then take um, several higher initiations. But even that is not like a complete shocking revelation about a new aspect of the spiritual path. This isn't a mystery school in which the mysteries are revealed uh, to us one by one. It's rather the whole picture is there in front of us. But what happens to us on the spiritual path is that step by step, our capacity to understand what we're seeing uh, becomes more subtle. And so we begin to know what these words mean on a level that we don't know at the beginning, even though we can say those very words. So in this context lately, I've been more intensely aware of the difference between inner and outer consciousness. And that may sound rather mundane, just to say it like that, or uh, uh, too elementary. I remember a friend of mine came to me once and said, When you pray intently to God, God will answer. And I was not tuning in to how seriously she meant it, and I said a little bit flippantly, Well, that's rather fundamental to the spiritual path, isn't it? But she looked at me very seriously and she said, no, Asha, I really mean it. And the difference between really knowing that that's true because it's become your inner reality and merely being able to say that's true because you believe it's true are really two entirely different experiences. Okay, I, The thread I was following was the difference between inner reality and outer consciousness. I was thinking about Swami Kriyananda on uh, April 21st, which when this is being recorded now is just a couple of days ago, April 21st, 2014, or is that what we are? Yes, 2014, which is the first year after Swami's passing. And in a sort of almost a slang way, I was trying to describe a certain quality about Swamiji, and I commented that I never saw him rattled. And it's not that I never saw him uh, have deep experiences of different kinds of feelings, but I never saw him um, confused about what was going on or about who he was or how he should respond to life. And as I was meditating on that today, I really appreciated that he always understood that inner, what was going on outside of you had nothing to do with your inner state of consciousness. I mean, that's that's really quite a, a powerful statement when you meditate on that deeply. Uh, up until this time, I've tended to think of it in terms more of, I can make my inner state of consciousness independent of outer circumstances. As Master says, if you choose to be happy, nothing on earth can make you unhappy. And the reverse is also true. If you choose to be unhappy, nothing can make you happy. In other words... You choose your state of consciousness by an act of will or an act of attunement, um, and you don't have to be subject to what's going on around you. To stand unshaken amidst the crash of breaking worlds is how Master put it dramatically, and we've often quoted that. But, But suddenly it's moved a step further than that, which is our inner consciousness is always the same. And we leave that inner consciousness to get snarled up in all the things that are happening to us and we lose touch with who, who we actually are. And then we, we float and we get bounced about and we struggle to come back to center. Um, but nothing, nothing has ever actually touched the core. Wherever we are in time and space, whether we're in the astral world, in the physical world, Our essential nature remains the same. Now, in this particular chapter, I mean, the implications of that, let me just just finish for that. It's not that I've been able to be different, but I see a a much wider doorway um, through which the devotee can walk and a much greater potential for freedom um, than I knew was there. This is the extraordinary fun of the spiritual path, is that you never finish. Just when you're on the edge of thinking, you have a couple of little things under your belt. It's just you realize that that what you you, you thought was the whole picture was just a tiny corner. And when you lift it, all the rest of this begins to um, cascade in front of you. It's really extraordinarily joyful. In this particular chapter, which is quite relevant to what I was just saying, the soul in God, Master tries to explain to us who we really are and what our true consciousness is and how we lose track of that consciousness. And the seven or eight or nine entries in this chapter are are virtually just one image after another of helping us to try to look at it from another angle. And each of these are are just um, symbols. He can't really say it because... uh, if you see it, you can't say it. <laughs> I mean, it's what you see cannot be translated into words. Words are not a medium that can actually convey states of consciousness. So what Swam, what Master is, they can hint and they can contain the vibrations. Master, in his uh, instructions on how to read Whispers from Eternity, he tells us that this is ink and paper, the book. But if we penetrate through the ink and paper, we will feel um, the vibrations of the living consciousness that experienced this, the states of realization that have now been translated in step down and step down to be ink and paper. But the ink and paper is a doorway to those states of consciousness. It is not in itself that state of consciousness, but it will take you to it. So Master, in giving us all these different images about how to understand ourselves, our little individual selves in relation to the infinite, is giving us something to meditate on, really. Just uh, to go deep with our own concentration into the images that he's offering and then see if by that um, attunement we can actually move into a state of realization in relation to it. Um, so the first one he talks about are the ocean is the ocean and the waves. Um, let me just and and what he's talking about here when when whenever we think of the ocean and the waves, it, there's an, a natural thought in the human mind to think that the higher the bigger the wave, the more powerful the way the more powerful the entity is. And when you're talking about the waves in the ocean. In terms of the soul and God, um, the the image actually reverses, because the ocean of spirit, the whole ocean, is our true reality. And what happens to us is that we be, we become, as as Master writes in this image, the storms of delusion. And the storms of delusion are our desires, our longing for fulfillment, our human attachments, our Um, the pleasures we find through the body, our attraction to power, to position, to fame, all these different things. These are the storms of delusion. There's the calm contentment of our own inner self, just being at peace with the reality, with our divine reality. And then delusion comes, and it starts attracting us. As uh, uh, Swamiji put it, or Master in another context, it's not here yet. Um, The light actually shines from within us. The light is within us. We are ourselves a channel for divine light. But that light goes out from us, and the world around us is, is shiny and reflective. A house of mirrors, sometimes it's called. And so our own enthusiasm, our own light, goes out and is reflected back to us, and we think the source of that light is outside of us. We think the source of that light is the admiration we receive from people, our own attractive reflection in the mirror, um, the, 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 what we can do with money, what we can do with self-expression, the car that we can drive, the places we can go to. It's, it's tinfoil reflecting back the light that we're giving it, but we think that the shiny object is the source. And so from being content within ourselves, we become extremely interested in all those shiny objects out there. Babies do it from the instant they're born. The instant they're born, they start reaching. They reach up for the hands of those who are taking care of them. They move out from themselves. And we just keep doing that our whole incarnation until it occurs to us to look within. So the image of the waves is that the ocean gets stirred up by the ocean of spirit, which is us where we 're resting in peace, gets stirred up by the storm of delusion, and we begin to reach and we begin to push, and we begin to push upward and outward away from our source. we begin to look out from ourselves for our fulfillment instead of into our own hearts for our fulfillment, and the higher the wave is pushed, the more the more distance it actually is from the from the whole ocean and When one wave gets up, it begins to, as as Master puts it here, it begins to vie for position with the other waves. And they crash into each other. And life becomes, as Master said, the more you define yourself as separate from the whole ocean of spirit, it just becomes a, a constant competition with all the other waves for supremacy. And, of course, the folly of it is obvious because no wave can remain Elevated forever, eventually the ocean itself it there's a, a the the law of uh the, the holding holding it the the way water interacts with itself the waves are always pulled back, and that's the pull that we're always feeling we're trying to find our fulfillment outside of our true source, and yet the source is also constantly whispering to pull us back and Master says in here, and it's very sweet he says. Spiritually developed people no longer vie together uh, against one another for position, but splash about happily in cheerful harmony with one another, with nature, and with God. When he wrote that, I thought, well, that's what a spiritual community is, is that instead of competing with each other, we cooperate with each other. Swamiji uh, Master used to say, if there's a thousand people and you have nine 999 enemies, why not have 999 friends? Why not look at everyone as your companion in truth instead of the one who's trying to take away from you your fulfillment? Well, of course, society as a whole is um, set up on the basis of competition. And in fact, the way we educate children and the more elite you get in your education or in the corporate world, People tell you that competition is the way to succeed and to think about being better than the people around you and getting an advantage over the people around you. It's Ignorance is, en- is enshrined now as wisdom. It's a, a very foolish society in many ways. And simultaneously is this growing awareness and manifested quite powerfully, I have to say, through the communities of Ananda and the ideal of spiritual communities which Master himself advocated with great um, commitment is that no this is a much better way to live. When people ask us how do you you know how do you keep interpersonal harmony in the Ananda communities and everybody thinks it's so difficult to do because if egos are vying against one another they will inevitably clash. But once your whole world view shifts and your thinking instead is to harmonize with a greater reality and even when you get many, many people together when all are trying to harmonize with that greater reality, interpersonal harmony then is its an automatic byproduct, in fact. And in many ways, Swamiji himself has been known to remark that communities are really not the point. The point is attunement with God. But if people come together, all trying to be in tune with God, a harmonious community is the inevitable byproduct. You don't even have to put any effort into it. It's just naturally what you want. You want to be with like-hearted and like-spirited people and like-minded friends. And you simply work together for a shared ideal. And part of that shared ideal is harmony and respect and letting your individual wave. Um, now you have to understand, it's not that you become less yourself. In fact, it's very, it's very interesting. Um, the, more, the more one becomes established on the spiritual path, the more individualistic, in fact, they actually become. And and the secret is this. It was very interesting to me when I first began to understand this. You see, most people live on the periphery of their own consciousness. They they take their values, their sense of style, um, their opinions, they take it from the world around them. They take it from the way they were raised, the culture they were brought up in, the fashion. I've been so amused. I've never been much for fashion, um, especially not for fashion trends and so on like that, and observing it from the outside, especially nowadays, I'm able to see that a great deal of what's fashionable is really ugly, just really ugly, and intensely unflattering, and and clunky, and just, it doesn't, it's not harmonious. Um, But even I, after you look at it long enough, you begin to think it's attractive. (laughs) It's like this hypnosis comes over you. You start out knowing that it's hideous, And then you eventually think that it has a certain charm. (laughs) Swami's opinion was people who follow fashion have no taste because they just follow fashion. Um, It's neither here nor there. It's not an argument I really care to make, but we just take our opinions from outside. We're not really a spontaneous expression of our own nature because we live on the edge. When you begin to meditate, when you begin to to relax that desperate desire to assert your your uniqueness and recognize your oneness with a greater reality you come closer to your own point of origin because our point of origin is in the infinite spirit and that word original uh, is derived from the point from the word origin so to be truly original is to do what you do from your own point of origin and all really great art and great creative expression and and great business innovations great anything is when a person is deeply in tune with the, with their own inner reality then what they their their work ceases to be imitative and it becomes truly original even if it's not different people think original means different but different is often a reaction to what is especially in the art world these days you know we're reacting against Art used to be beautiful, so now let's make it hideous. But that's not an original expression. That's a reactive expression. You're still being completely controlled by the outside. When art is original, it it, it becomes great. Because the closer you are to your own origin, the closer you are to everyone's origin, to a shared reality. But because the soul is unique, because God made us individual, individual and As Master puts it, he said, every atom of creation is dowered with individuality, is how he put it. When you get right back to the origin point of all of us, even though we are expressions of one reality, we are unique expressions. And then our work becomes original. Swamiji uses the expression sometimes, uh, the explanation. He says, think about the words, I love you. He said, really, it's it's the definition of a cliché. You can hardly think of anything that has been said so often. It's those words. He said, but if you speak them to someone from your own heart, with your own consciousness deeply engaged, he said, it always sounds new. It's a beautiful thought, isn't it? From your origin point. If it's really from your heart when you say it, it's like it's never been said before because it's never been said in quite that way, with quite that meaning. Um, well Swami uh, oh, let's see what was I thinking just a moment there was a, there was a flea, oh yes I know what I wanted to say um, I was having a conversation with Swamiji once about the yugas the yugas mean the age, the ages on the planet and we are presently at the beginning of Dwapara Yuga Kala Yuga is the worst Dwapara Yuga is one up from Kala Yuga then comes Treta Yuga then comes Satya Yuga uh, Dwapar is the age of energy. Kali before us is the age of matter. We're in the age of energy. We go then to the age of thought. And then finally we get to the age of spirit. And I was having a conversation. That's a 12,000-year cycle, by the way, so don't hold your breath. (laughs) And and you won't live on this planet if you're not suited for that age. You'll go to a planet that's suitable to you. But that's a different discussion. But I was talking with Swamiji once, and uh, he was talking about... Oh, I know what I was saying to him. I said, sir, if we if we come back again, meaning if if you come back, sir, and I come back with you to help you, uh, let's wait for a higher age. How about that? Let's not come to this age because this is just too icky on this planet right now. And his first response was, I don't intend to come back at all. Although in later conversations he would modify that by saying, that he knew his compassion for us would undoubtedly draw him back. But at that moment, he announced that he wasn't going to come back at all. And he said, even Satya Yuga, even the highest age, he said, it's still the material world. It's not divine freedom. Uh, He said, the only difference is that, as he put it, people like us are in charge. And I said, so then that the whole world, the whole planet, is like Ananda. It's run with kindness and integrity and um, personal dedication. Yes, he said, the whole planet becomes like Ananda, which would certainly make it more pleasant to live in. But still, it's just the material plane. But reflecting on that, Ananda, the communities of Ananda and the spirit of Ananda, it's so self-evident when you experience it. It's, it's, it's not even like a revolution. It's more like an exhalation. It's like one has been barricading oneself against um, ignorance against the storms of Maya. And then you just come into port where people are living in harmony, in cheerful harmony with one another, with nature and with God. Now, moving right along, um, Swami uh, Master then goes on to talk about how well, once we understand that I, as a wave, am really uh, an expression of the whole ocean, uh, Master speaks humorously about how A person hearing this teaching then just goes cheerfully around and announces, I am God. And especially in in, uh, drug-induced ecstasies uh, back from the 60s, which is a period of time I lived through, people would have these drug experiences in which they would sort of see themselves as part of a cosmic reality, and they would come right back down to perfectly ordinary consciousness and then claim that, I am God, I am the ocean of spirit because they had seen it in a certain way through the chemical intervention, which is by no means at all the same. It's like going to the movies, it's not like really changing your consciousness. Um, you are you are the movie, but it's still just like buying a ticket and going to the movies. It's not like really, like you don't really become that, in that you've actually uh, transcended delusion. Um, you've just seen a movie about the possibility of transcending it, but moving along again. Um, master says that the the ocean can describe itself also as the waves but from the perspective of the wave you you don't really know yourself to be the whole ocean so it's it's all right as master puts it to say god is god is acting through me the power that moves through me is divine rather than saying i am god master said wait until you can really know that before you start saying that, because otherwise it's too confusing. The ego will claim that, even when you think you're not. So that's why we behave as devotees. That's why even though, in a philosophical sense, we can say, I am one with God, there is no difference between God and me, until we have transcended our identification with all that happens to the wave, um, it's safer not to say that. Um, But the masters can claim that. And in fact, the interpretation of the Bible between the self-realization interpretation and the the more what you might call the the Jesus as the only source of revelation and the, the only possibility of salvation reading of the Bible has to do with the pronoun I. Because when Jesus said I, he meant I, the infinite spirit. When people watching Jesus or hearing about him later hear him use the pronoun I, they think that one body that incarnated at one time and that died on the cross and even was resurrected. But still, Jesus was, was the infinite spirit acting through that body. He wasn't the body first. And so until we, are, until we really know that, it's better to, to reverse the equation and enjoy the fact that my little wave floats on the great ocean of spirit and, and God God animates me rather than I animate God. Um, then Master uses the image of electric bulbs. And these, again, as I was saying, are, these are all different ways of trying us to get us to understand how we are, we appear to be separate, but we are actually one. Still wanting us to understand our unique individuality. So he uses the idea of electric bulbs. It's really, it's fascinating when you think about it because these are things that we see all the time. I, when Master starts talking like this, I enjoy it so much because when you read the Bible, Jesus talks about sheep and sheaves of wheat and petitioning kings and uh, the wheels on a wagon. I mean, he uh, He talks about what people were actually experiencing. And he could have talked about electricity or light bulbs and so on because Jesus' consciousness was not limited by time or space. He could see and know everything that was possible. But he needed to use everyday images that the people around him could understand and that could be a doorway for them of deeper consciousness. When I read a lot in the Bible, which I was doing Recent to this broadcast, because Easter was quite close to the time I'm recording this. Um, again, I, I was very grateful that I don't have to struggle through all those images in the Bible, many of which are very unfamiliar to me, or too esoteric for me to understand. But Jesus was trying to be very grounded in the in the in the hearing of his, in the life experience of his of his listeners. He talks about slaves and kings and lords and masters and servants, which is not what we live with. But Master is also trying to be very grounded in our experience, and he's talking about light bulbs and electricity. And if you, wherever you are right now, if you look around, you'll see all the different light sources in your house animated by electricity. And each one stands alone, seemingly. Uh, you see one light bulb in one room, and another in another. And look out the window, and you see a street light. and You see a car headlight. Everyone has uh, something that is holding uh, the 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 power, and then translating that into light that you see. And they all seem entirely separate from each other. But masters writing here, especially when we're talking about those those electric lights that are wired in, it's the electric power. It's the same electricity that's powering all of them, but they're different shapes, they're different colors, they're different locations, they, they can flash on and off, they can make patterns in all sorts of ways and, and give the impression of independence. But in fact, all of them are dependent on that one source. It, whenever you've been in a blackout, a power out, a power shortage, it's just immediate. Oh my goodness, all of those separate lights are actually interconnected. Because once that source is gone, they're all gone. And so yet it's one more way both to think about yourself because you can see yourself as a a uniquely colored and shaped bulb illuminating a certain sphere of, of influence, whatever that sphere of influence might be. But there would be no light flowing through you or no light flowing through any light bulb unless that power of electricity was flowing through it also. And so the more deeply we attune ourselves to that source and feel ourselves, instead of being the result, that we're actually the the source cause. And the the bulb also expresses itself. But my self-definition, I move back all the way to the source. That's the wave identifying with the ocean and then feeling that power coming through you rather than imagining that it's all your own. And then he talks about the... The different jets of a gas stove or the different burners of a gas stove, the power comes in and they all express differently. And they can be shut off or turned on. And again, you have exactly the same image as the electricity that you think of all these things as independent. And you look at other people in your lives and you think they're completely different and separate from you. But if you tune in deeper and, and this... This understanding has to always come from the self first. You tune in deeper to yourself and you realize how superficial all those externally identifiable characteristics are. He's a man, he's a woman, he's of this age, he's of that age or culture or country. But you begin to feel that this same animating spirit, the same longing for happiness, the same need for love, that is the essence of who you are and I am, is exactly the same in everyone else. And when you begin to look at people, instead of seeing all that makes you separate, you begin to see all that makes you the same. And the more deeply you're conscious of the divine presence within you, the more when you look at someone else, you just see that same presence. As I've told the story many times of the man who was a near stranger to Swamiji who Felt so loved by him, and he asked Swamiji, "How can how can you love me? You don't even know me." And Swami said, "When I look at you, I see the presence of God within you, and I already love God, so it's easy to love you." you now, I I really contemplated that story a lot. It's really quite an extraordinary story, because when we look at each other, we see, you know, the name, the personality, the gender, the physical form. And Swami said, "When he looked at this man he didn't he didn't see any of that. What he saw was the source. The same divine source in him uh, is the same that we experience in each of our own hearts in meditation and in prayer and in moments of transcendence it's a It's a marvelously fun exercise, both to practice with the people who are very, very close to you." And to practice with perfect strangers. Just when you're there and you're talking and you're having an ordinary conversation, just just visualize for a moment if you like the electric wires animating each of our bulbs, the uh, gas line uh, which is ignited as our life force, whatever it might be that there's this, the, the, the same ocean that is just lifting up this wave and that wave, but that our in essence, exactly the same. And feel what that does for your own sense of well being and your own sense of belonging and your own sense of peace and security and being loved. Um, that's why Master, that's why Swami collected all these different images here. Just our inner state of consciousness. The outer world is completely irrelevant to our inner state of consciousness. That source exists first, and then all this stuff just spills out from it. But what's spilling out is so superficial compared to the source. And how that uh, electric bulb expresses itself, how that gas jet or that wave expresses itself, has no effect on the quality of the source which is also a, a, a very um, illuminating way to consider it. It doesn't matter how much error uh, you've committed, how much delusion you've embraced, how much sin you have perpetrated. It makes no difference. None of that touches the source because the source just flows exactly the same. The ocean is completely unaffected by the waves. The, the biggest storm imaginable can rage on the surface But sooner or later, all of that raging, upward-moving energy will just sink back and the ocean will be unchanged. And, And so we have to realize about ourselves the one of the greatest difficulties people have on the spiritual path is coming into a deep state of acceptance of how much we are loved by God. And this constant thought that somehow... I have to achieve this. I have to achieve something before God will love me. And all of these images, the soul and God, which is what this chapter is called, to realize that the soul is already with God and we have just wandered off. We have allowed our wave to be stirred up by the storm of Maya. And if we can just extricate ourselves, our identification with that storm, the Storm may still blow for a while, but if we're living in the ocean, from the perspective of the ocean, the waves are not such a big deal. From the perspective of the waves, it's very um, tumultuous, but from the perspective of the ocean, it just rises and then it falls. Master gives us this uh, one more example, is many pots of water sitting on a garden patio say. And all the same garden pots and they're all filled with water. And then a full moon rises and the moon is reflected in each of those pots of water. And when you look, you imagine if there's a hundred pots that there's a hundred moons because looking down into the pots, you see a hundred distinct moons. And the size of the pot or whether or not there's agitation, whether the pots are being agitated by wind or other movement, may distort the reflection of the moon, but nonetheless it all appears separate. But no matter what that appearance Master describes, it's so sweet to think about it, when you look up, or when you look in, you discover that there's still only one moon, no matter how fragmented it may become, that the effect is not the source. The same story that we've been talking all the way through. Then Master talks about creation altogether, and he wants to correct a wrong that is often a misunderstanding about how self-realization views creation, specifically how Hinduism views creation. And uh, in fact, this is uh, that that what what we understand is because there is only one source. That means that absolutely everything in creation is a manifestation of that reality. And our reverence for nature is not as if nature is a separate power that's going to help us. But rather, once we attune to the inner source, we see the divine manifesting in so many beautiful and interesting ways, and we feel that source um, reflecting back to us and teaching us in all these different ways. So as Master puts it, we we worship and revere God in Uh, creation, in nature, in the natural world, in the rivers, in the sky, in the wild animals, in the trees, in the birds, but not as those things. It's not like the river has a power that's separate even from our own power. Um, Our friend uh, Joseph Cornell, who's known as Bharat within Ananda, he teaches about nature awareness and he, he talks about that. Once we recognize that we are that nature is an expression of our own inner reality, he said that's when the attunement with nature really begins. And that's how we really attune ourselves rather than merely observe, is that when we recognize this is the same life force, this is just another expression of the same electricity, another different kind of wave on the ocean, and the more we see it all as a whole, the more powerful it becomes. Um, Even St. Francis, whom people think sort of worship nature in a certain sense. He didn't. He saw God expressed through it. He was the first he 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 brought the message that the divine expresses everywhere. That's what he was trying to say. In the sun, in the moon, in the water, in the fire. Everything is an expression of the divine. There is no other animating force. Then Master defines simply what is the ego and ego's. It's a very important question because we're talking about soul We're talking about God. And ego sort of plays itself out here. Here Master defines ego as the soul attached to the body. Um, He's also defined it, and Swami's also defined it, as the soul identified with the body. I find the word identified a little easier to work with. Because identification, you can understand, is just a way of thinking about it. You become deeply identified with your job, with the home that you live in, with the, the way you look or something like that, that you think this is you. But merely because you've identified with it doesn't mean that your essential nature has changed. So the ego is the soul, the infinite spirit, identified with the temporary body that it's living in. And because we become identified with it, we've also become attached to it. And that attachment brings also confusion and, and fear with it. But you see, if we've identified with the body, we can also learn to identify with a greater reality. We haven't become the body in the sense of severing our tie with the infinite. We've just lost touch with where we came from. We've wandered very far from home, and we don't really remember. We're all sort of like uh, a little mentally deficient in this respect. We're like little children or old people whose memories don't work anymore. We're still wandering about, but we don't remember where we came from. We, we don't have our address tattooed on our hand. We actually do have it tattooed on our hand, but we can't read it right now. That we just think this is what's happening to us. Now, the, the important point about that, I mean, yes, you can go into a long discussion about why and how and all of that, but the relevant point for what we're talking about now is to realize that nothing's changed. You are as much a part of the infinite now as you ever have been and ever will be, that you've just identified with the wrong reality. We have identified with the wrong reality. And we have to gradually overcome that false identification. That's what it is to overcome the ego. And it's it's an easier, more, I call it a more friendly way to think about the ego, because it doesn't really help us to be at war with ourselves. So we identify, for example, With the fact that, you know, I have to have this uh, position or else I have to have this job or else I don't have any self worth. Okay, we've identified with the ego as a separate entity. That ego must vie against other egos for position and recognition. So if I don't have what my ego, what I think I need as a separate entity, then I feel um, diminished. I feel small because I've identified with the separate ego and if it doesn't get, the gratification that's inherent in that system, in the ego system, then I feel badly. The more I identify with my separateness, the more my experience of life is defined by what happens around me. But it isn't as if our essential bliss nature is really changed. It's just that we've lost touch with it. And this is, again, this iteration. It's not a question of reality shifting. It's our losing touch with reality. And Master says, um, Realization, it means to realize your true self is the great ocean of spirit by breaking the delusion that you are this little body, um, and the, the, this little body, this little ego, and the personality that you think of as yourself. What do I mean when I say I? Do I mean I with all of those limiting conditions? You know, once I say I is Asha, that means I have to be female, I have to be American, I have to be of a certain age, um, I have a certain physique, I have um, uh, difficulty doing, I'm not very mechanically inclined, You know, I'm better at words than I am at music. I mean, all these different things that I start saying. Once I say I am Asha, if I say I am the infinite spirit, and realize when I begin to identify with that, then all of a sudden everything that's possible for any human being is at least, to some extent, possible for me. And Swami Kriyananda, you see, demonstrated that to us um, repeatedly. He showed us what was possible if that firm ego identification is overcome. And that's why he could write music, he could write books, he could sing. On the rare occasions when he would show us anything having to do with dance, he was automatically in tune with dance. He could understand astrology when he needed to. He could just do whatever he set his mind to. And he, he seemed to have limitless energy and creativity. He said to me once when I was struggling with a tiny writing project, he just said, well, I, I never have writer's block. He said it just like, that. well, I never have writer's block. Like, why would you have writer's block? You just attune yourself to the infinite consciousness of the spiritual eye, and you ask God to help you, and you can do it. And Swamiji just had this um, unshakable, in which he demonstrated over and over, confidence that if it could be done by a human being, it can be done by me, because all human beings come from the same source, and it wasn't um, a, a, an inflated ego. It was just the opposite. It was a totally deflated ego. So he was standing at the source. And once you're standing at the source, it can be directed in any direction you want it to direct it. Swamiji said Master could converse with experts in any field as an expert in their field. Because he could just tune in to what that reality was. There's the story told of uh, a commissioning Master com- commissioning a picture of Lahiri Mahashaya, And the artist just didn't capture Lahiri and when the when the photo was delivered uh, the picture was delivered master said master didn't like it and he said how long did it take you to persuade yourself that you were an artist and the artist answered 20 years and then he became angry at master said i'd like to see you do that well and twice as long and so master said give me a week and then master said he just attuned himself to what it meant to be an artist and he worked at it for a while and then made a, a beautiful photo uh, a painting which he put on display when the artist came back to see it and didn't tell him who it was, who had done it. And the artist looked at the painting and said, well, this is much better than mine. And Master said he was the one who did it. Because if it can be done by any human being, they're just using the same source. We're all the same in our essence. Now, most of us don't have the destiny to be able to do everything. But whatever we're trying to do, we think that the way to do it is to become very tense and try to push our own reality when the actual truth is the more we relax back and say, All right, God, how would you like this done? All right, Master, work through me. If this is the project that I have to work on, what is the answer here? If this is the person I have to talk to, what do you want me to say to them? If this is the baby that I have to comfort, help me to understand what, what this child of mine needs from me instead of always be living so much on the periphery, identified so deeply with our own ego, that we're always clashing. I was talking to someone recently about getting along with their own grown, uh, grown-up child. And uh, I made the simple suggestion that, you know, you should be interested in what they think instead of always trying to correct it. <laughs> it's like, they just tune you out. Even little children just tune you out. You should be interested in them as a child of God. They are equally the same spirit that you are. There's no difference between you. The more you identify with your ego self, I am the mother, you are the child, I'm the wise one, you're not the wise one, just egos vying against each other, waves on the sea crashing into one another instead of swimming happily together in happy harmony. Um, It's... It's it's a tremendously liberating way to live. And the more deeply you can surrender into it, the more free and happy you become. Because nothing can ever touch the clear, free and, and blissful nature of your own inner self. Um, my samskars of yoga came out when I was a tiny child. And many of you have heard me tell this story, but it's relevant. When I was a little tiny child and my mother scolded me I was maybe 2 or 3 years old and it really hurt my feelings you know I was a little a little kid vulnerable to my mother's scolding and I deserved it so I probably felt a little guilty too and I felt bad I don't like feeling bad I like to be happy I don't like feeling hurt but I re- remember that I knew that there was a place inside of me that would be untouched by that hurt And I consciously, as a a little child, and I I, I can see it in my mind's eye, what I was doing, I backed up from this world. I just backed up from this world deeper and deeper into myself. It was the opposite of what is psychologically unhealthy, which is dissociating from from your reality. I didn't dissociate from it. It was still with me completely, but I knew that I could get into a, a deeper, I could get to the source. I could get into a deeper dimension of myself. I wasn't going away from myself. I was getting into a deeper dimension of myself where everything was fine and then I could look out from there at this experience. And the experience would still be the same, but I would be um, in a different relationship to it. It's not dulling your awareness, you see. It's expanding your awareness. So it, it's still there, but it's so small in comparison to who we Really are. And that's where I started this discussion that I'm beginning to appreciate that our inner reality is not merely independent of all that happens, that all that happens is irrelevant. The distinction is clear in my own mind. I don't know if it's communicating or not. We are always the same. I've been reading this fascinating book about Ananda Moima, who was a great saint in India. She died in 1982. Swami Kriyananda spent much time with her and was very close with her. Master writes about her in Autobiography of a Yogi. And she was born uh, with uh, enormous spiritual realization. She never acquired it, she just always had it. And in answer to every question virtually, I am always the same, she says. And there was a period of time when she she would go into these states of samadhi in which she was unconscious seemingly of the outer, which, in which she did not interact at all with the devotees or the outer world. She was perfectly still. She was silent. Um, no matter what went on around her, she made no response. And then she would come out of those states, and she was a very natural, very charming, um, very interactive, very sensitive, very engaged person. And someone said... Um, you know, why are you one way at at one time and and, and why were you so far away from us and with us now? And she said, uh, that's how you see it." it. To me, it was always the same. Whether I'm still and unmoving, whether I'm walking among you and talking, I don't change. And my experience doesn't change. Because what she lived in was the source and then she allowed that source to express. That was how she herself would talk about it. It was like um, things would express through her and she was she would observe them as much as anybody else would observe them, even though others thought it was her, because she was inhabiting that body, but she would, she never identified with that body. So I mean, Kriyananda said the same. He did not manifest as Ananda Moiman manifested I mean, his his lila, his divine assignment was very different. But he, he described himself in the same way. He said, nothing, I never allow anything to disturb my peace. That's how he would say it. And that's what I observed in him. Nothing ever disturbed his peace. I was remembering once when we were late, we were having to, this, didn't, this happened more than once, when we'd be going somewhere, we'd be somewhat in a hurry, we'd have to do something, and he had to finish his breakfast. And he would just without the slightest tension, he would finish his breakfast, he would finish his coffee. You know, and we were going to leave when we were going to leave, but I would be standing there with every part of me anxious for the departure, and I would watch Swami just sip his coffee until his coffee was gone, at which point he would stand up and we would leave. But I had allowed all those external circumstances to agitate my energy. He never allowed it to happen. He wasn't careless. He wasn't irresponsible. It was just he never moved out of the source. And even when what needed to manifest through him was stern or even sad or um, puzzled, many different things. It wasn't that he didn't live. He lived completely. But he never identified with what was passing through him He only identified with the source. That's how he described when he was expelled from SRF in 1962, Self-Realization Fellowship. It was a huge, huge difficulty for his life. And as he said, he lay on the bed in his parents' house where he ended up, praying to die, just staring at the ceiling. I have to skip ahead because I don't have time to explain it at great length. But within a few months, he was lecturing and singing because he sort of was almost forced to And people remarked, oh, what they felt from him was such joy. And he was just astonished because joy was the last feeling he was conscious of. But he said, then when he really thought about it more deeply, he realized that underneath everything, that joy had always been with him and had been untouched by anything that had gone on around him. He had lost... He, he had been concentrating at that period of time on another reality, but he, he said even in the midst of that, he could still feel that that source was there. Now, that's what we're, that's what we're looking for. That's where we're trying to go. Let me just think. In, and then Master says, the last one that I hadn't yet spoken of, he just says, just like the ocean eventually takes every wave back into itself no matter how far that wave goes, he said, so it is, that the great ocean of divine love is always embracing us and is always going to pull us, pull us back into its divine heart. And whether that happens easily, quickly, or effortlessly, that's the soul's part in relationship to God. And the story is not finished until that final union takes place. Joy to you.